Hello and welcome to Fundamental Value, a journey to quantify crypto. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with the leading hedge funds, analysts, trading venues, and digital asset market participants. Our goal is simple, to understand how the leading minds in the cryptocurrency space are researching, analyzing, and quantifying the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer, this podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast should not be construed as the provision of investment advice or as an offer to buy or sell any securities or tokens or to make or consider any investment or course of action. You can view our show notes for our complete disclosures. In this week's episode, I'm joined by Avanish Akila, Chief Investment Officer of Arano Capital. Avanish, it's good to have you on. Thanks, Joshua. Thanks for having me on. So super excited about this uh, this episode. Um, you know, I think Avanish has a lot to say. You know, um, and uh, you know, especially you know, first first licensed crypto fund. You know, ex Goldman guys. Let's just jump right into it. So, so what what did you do before crypto? Um, you know, what brought you into the space? Yeah, I was a traditional finance guy. You, you could describe it as that. You know, I was interested in economics and finance, and that's what, what that's what I majored in. At university, so uh, I went off after university, got a job in banking, um, worked at Goldman, and then UBS. I was an equity research analyst, so I was covering the auto sector in London, which was quite a fun sector to cover. You know, at times we would be able to go and test drive the cars, and it's you know super exciting being at that age and hanging around with um, the CFOs and, and the CEOs of, of these huge European car companies. Um, so that's something I did for seven years. I think it was a really good foundation. You, you you basically learn how to build financial models. You learn how to be critical and analyze the financials and, and the business uh, outlook for companies, especially with cyclical names. You know, there's a lot there's a lot of economic inputs, FX, and 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 the different cost inflation. So it's a really good grounding. Um, I enjoyed it immensely. I wanted to move on to being a, a portfolio manager and uh so that's that that's what led me to oxif which is um uh, a big new york hedge fund uh they're rebranded now as sculptor but yeah i was working for oxif in hong kong covering the uh, industrial sector as a long short pm i did that for nine years and then there was yeah a bit of a sidestep as you can as you can appreciate there's not much of a technology theme in what I'd done up until that time, so yeah, it was it was a bit of a sidestep into crypto, but that was that, that that's basically my background. And so, so what was it specifically about crypto that intrigued you, and when did you first stumble upon it? Yeah, so there's a couple of things at work there. You know, working uh, as an industrials long shot PM, it's fun. You know, I I like tangible stuff. I like going to factories. I li- I like looking at manufacturing business models. But, it, you know, at times it's it's not that exciting. These are companies that are cyclical. So uh, at the peak of the cycle, they might make 10 to 15% margins. The bottom of the cycle, they're struggling to make a profit. And so in terms of investing, you know, these are stocks that essentially go up and down. There's, there's no compounding growth that you see in the consumer and, and tech industries. And so I think that as a, as, a, as a PM, it's a bit harder covering that sector. That's one thing for sure. But I think, you know, personally, I definitely missed out on a lot of these investments. Like I, I wasn't a, when all this, st- when, when, 
when something new has come along, like Facebook, I was a bit of a denier, didn't believe in that. Um, so I begrudgingly got involved with a Facebook account when I moved to Hong Kong. Um, WhatsApp, I couldn't understand why that sold for, I think, $8 billion at the time when it sold. So, yeah, you know, I, you know, pretty late adopter to, to Netflix even. So I would say that, like, technology passed me by a bit. I didn't make a lot of money in the FANG stocks at all. Uh, so I think that just made me more curious and I think more open-minded to learning more about tech and really understanding uh, how to invest in tech. And that kind of led me that kind of led me t- towards technology and understanding technology and actual block the actual blockchain bit was was more a friend of mine who was always going on about bitcoin so this is like in 2017 and i had to share a car journey with him i was riding from san francisco to um, santa barbara we were going to a wedding so this guy's like an old friend of mine lives in guatemala and uh, i traveled over from hong kong we had like this five five hour car journey together and he's going on about bitcoin and i said look john just why don't you stop telling me how much money you made in this and just explain to me like what is it exactly and the way he explained it to me um was much more the kind of financial freedom libertarian type arguments uh an alternative to like the existing financial system which is failing and so you know i was a big fan of gold i've always liked gold for, for those reasons that people buy bitcoin and, I, and it really struck me as yeah gold 2.0 and uh, you know i thought well this is like gold but even better and so that's when i started to diversify uh, what i owned in gold and start to put it into bitcoin so that's really interesting it you know it 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 feels like you know you know the earlier days for crypto were very much driven by you know obviously this idea of financial freedom but also the 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 idea of operating outside of the traditional banking system right and and being able to physically send capital right we saw this with Roger Ver um, you know who was earlier into Bitcoin and you know you know wanted to create a digital money and then you know in in I guess it was around July 2017 or October, I can't remember the exact time when, when that narrative kind of started to split. And, you know, we saw that Bitcoin was, you know, not necessarily able to, to take the amount of transactions that were needed to, you know, operate as a, a currency. Um, you know, this digital gold narrative start to emerge, but it really feels like it's emerged, you know, mainly through, through coronavirus, right, where, when it's really taken hold. And we've kind of seen that in our sentiment data, right, where, you know, for the first time ever in March 2020, gold became the most used words in crypto tweets uh, or in tweets related to Bitcoin for that matter. So it's interesting to see that, you know, even three years ago, you know, that was the narrative that's that stuck stuck with you and that made sense with you because because it seems like that's become the narrative that's emerging now. So interesting to see that, you know, that was what what originally kind of drew you down this rabbit hole. So I'm, I'm interested in learning more about, you know, what you did between you know your 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 uh, your roles in, in in you know equity as an equity analyst in crypto because you know I, th- I think you were you know at another firm I, at Kinetic I believe yeah, um, right. you know before yeah. before coming coming over to Arana so I'd love to hear a bit bit more about that yeah so I was you know like like you mentioned I was I was getting into crypto and and everyone's been in everyone who's who's working crypto has been in been down that journey which is you start with Bitcoin and then you're buying Ethereum before you know it. You've got all these different uh, projects that you're invested in or trading the tokens for. And um, but I but you know I, I knew my background was not technology. So like as much as I can try and read about that, 
And as much as I can try and um, uh, read up and understand blockchain technology uh, and understand the projects like from a bottom up standpoint, you know, I need I, I couldn't do it on my own. That's for sure. Um, but I thought it was something that was be, that that's really interesting, something that I could definitely do as a potential next step uh, in my career. And what happened was old friend of mine, David Wills, who uh, was the head of trading at Oxif, um, he was one of the guys that helped set up Kinetic. And so at that time, they were looking for a portfolio manager. You know, they were already doing quite a lot of equity investing, um, liquid market investments as well. But these were, these, were all, these were all like, they weren't regulated fund products. It was more like friends and family, private fund. They weren't even funds, you know, they were, they, they, they were like vehicle, investment vehicles, like for friends and family. It's not the type of thing um, you could market. Um, so they needed a PM and uh, they wanted to eventually be able to launch some regulated fund products in the space. And so I was, I was uh, brought along to help them do that and so that that was that was quite interesting because we had a fairly big like a five-person investment team and we had like well over like over 50 to 100 investments uh various different icos um some some tokens that were were already listed and some equity type investments so you know you've you've switched over from kinetic to um you know you know Arano and you know you're the CIO at Arano now. So so why leave you know Kinetic? You know why you know I think start Arano and and you know what is Arano and what is you know Venture Smart Asia, which you know I think you guys you know kind of were a uh, I guess a subsidiary of for for back of lack of better words. Yeah, so I can explain that. And it's a little bit confusing with all the different uh, names. But what happened with with Kinetic? Um, actually, Kinetic is still around. Their their blockchain investment firm they do a more arbitrage style uh, trading now and also vc investing um but effectively uh kinetic was already parted with venture smart um since venture smart is a licensed and uh, regulated entity sfc regulated entity in in hong kong and so it the, the the funds that we were planning under kinetic were always designed to be distributed by VentureSmart and distributed under the license of VentureSmart. And so uh, what happened was uh, Kinetic, at the end of 2018, obviously the environment was very different then. And so Kinetic had a bit of a a change in their strategy. And uh, that enabled me to take on the project myself. Uh, You know, I effectively uh, bought them out, those, those companies that we had set up. And uh, I partnered with VentureSmart. And so the way you can think about Arano is Arano is really the branding. That's the, that's the, um, the company that I set up. And VentureSmart is the licensed entity. So, you know, I have a couple of different hats. Uh, I have, uh, I have the, the Arano hat and I also have uh, my regulated hat, which is uh, being a responsible officer and, and manager in charge uh, of, digit, of the digital asset business at uh, VentureSmart. So as, as a, actually as a fund structure, we, we have the same structure, which is the fund has two investment, all of the funds will launch up the two investment advisors. One is VentureSmart and one is Arano. And so what, uh, what does being the first F- SFC regulated fund in Hong Kong mean? And what benefit does that confer to Arano over other funds? 
Yeah, so, you, you know, the way it's, I think it works in a couple of different ways, you know, like if we're just talking about um, what does it mean in black and white, uh, it means that we can market the fund formally to investors. So uh, there's a few different distinctions here. The cryptocurrencies in Hong Kong are not defined as securities, like Bitcoin's not a security. Uh, so it's not regulated uh, in that sense, but uh, a fund structure, so like a, 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 a collective investment scheme is, is a definition in Hong Kong, which is what you know is like a mutual fund, that is a security. So if you package up any crypto investments into a collective investment scheme, that and, and you and you want to you want to market that product to investors in Hong Kong, then that is regulated activity. So that's really that that's really the benefit is that we can package this up in a fund, and it could be like an ETF as well eventually. But there's obviously different different levels of funds. You know, part of our licensing condition is that we're only we're able to market our funds to professional investors, and we have to check the suitability of the investors uh, to ascertain that they're able, they have the risk tolerance to invest in this asset class because it is volatile. Um, but effectively, you know, VentureSmart, we, we, I think we made a, a really great step forward with VentureSmart because um, we are the, the one and only uh, SFC-approved digital asset manager in Hong Kong. And the way that worked, like just to, like it's, 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 it's a little bit boring, but just to, just to give you the distinction, a Type 9 license in Hong Kong is a license um, to conduct asset management business a type nine there's obviously lots of type nine asset managers in hong kong they can invest up to 10 percent of a portfolio into crypto to invest 100 percent of a portfolio into crypto you need the type nine plus you need to meet an additional licensing condition so that's the additional licensing condition that we that we're able to meet which which is you know so far we're the only ones to get that so uh, something you mentioned earlier is, is super interesting. You know, you mentioned uh, ETFs in Hong Kong. So what, you know, you know, we, we talk a lot about, you know, regulation in the U.S. on this podcast. But what do you think broadly is the Hong Kong government's stance on digital assets? Do you think a, an ETF is, is something that's that's, you know, in the cards that, you know, they'd potentially be, be you know, willing to consider approval of? Yeah, so this is yeah, this is like a really important distinction, and and a lot of people want to discuss ETFs, Bitcoin ETFs. You know, my sense is it's 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 some way away in a place like Hong Kong, and the reason for that is the regulatory environment for cryptocurrencies in Hong Kong is that this is an asset class that is only available to professional investors. So a professional investor in Hong Kong is similar to an accredited investor in the U.S. That would be uh, an investor who has. So they're kind of looking at it like secondary share trading of you know private companies in a way. Yeah, well, so it, it, it's it's obviously if you list something on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, then by definition it's available to retail. Right. And we we have a Bitcoin fund, for example, that is only available to professional investors. So you know we have to check they meet the PI status before we can market that fund to them and that's why it needs to be a private fund can't be listed as an etf so it's just it's a private fund rather than an exchange traded fund but you know as a pro as a private fund it has daily liquidity so people can get in and out with the daily liquidity they just need Got to it. be professional investors yeah that's a distinction so i, I think it. like and if the question is 
Well, when will the SFC in Hong Kong be comfortable with a, a Bitcoin ETF? Like, that's a tough question. I guess it would have to be, I guess the, I guess, well, I guess my follow-up question would be, what are their, what are their concerns? Do you think that their concerns are similar to the SECs, you know, related to market structure and pricing and liquidity and, and things like that? Or do you think it's, um, you know, there's something else at play that would, you know, yeah. that, that maybe scares the SFC that doesn't scare the SEC in the United States? Look, I think, uh, I think a lot of the concerns are going to be similar. I, I would say I know there was a little bit of discussion in the U.S. about how the market is not orderly um, and people can manipulate the market for Bitcoin. I'm not nec- I'm not necessarily. I mean, that comes down to opinion. I'm not necessarily a big believer in that. You know, I think the market is is got so much liquidity; it's very hard to manipulate it. I think the biggest concerns are, and obviously I'm not a regulator, so I can only give my opinion on this. But I think. The biggest concerns are the volatility and the potential for permanent loss of capital. Like, you know, these are, you know, gold's been around for like 4,000 years, right? Um, Bitcoin's been around for 10 years. Crypto, you know, blockchain networks have vulnerabilities just like any other network. You know, we've seen crypto projects disappear because of bugs and, you know, there was a, there was a recent one, right? Um, Yam, which is a yep. crypto project. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm not. And te- Ethereum Classic getting 51% attacked, what, like three or four times already now. And, you know, exactly. Def- there were five DeFi hacks in Q2 of 2020. So, so I certainly share that opinion. Yeah. And so, you know, it's not for the faint hearted. And I think from a, a regulator's viewpoint or through the regulator's lens, they're looking at retail investors that um, don't have large portfolios that could be potentially wiped out if they, if they're if they're allowed to invest in this unchecked and so yeah they would naturally want to be able to try and protect investors from potential losses um, yeah and so right. hence yeah and so hence hence why the the regime here is the investors got to have like at least a million us dollars in financial assets um like have a portfolio of, 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 of uh, at least a million us dollars and have the risk and have have their risk tolerance is like assessed so that they're suitable so then are individuals not able to interact i mean without let's say a vpn or you know i guess illegally on a crypto exchange in hong kong well so this so that's interesting right because we're selling a we're selling a security right which is a collect, collective investment scheme right so yeah, we that you know that that that's clearly under the remit of the SFC. Now, if if like if you're if you're an individual, then there is probably a way that you can trade crypto because if you're if if you're if you're accessing crypto just as on an, an individual, exchange, asset, an individual yeah, like as an individual, you're not going via like a regulated exchange or via a regulated fund. Then right. yeah, then potentially you can use it like if you're using it for payments or whatever. Then that's something right. that's something different, right? It's not an investment product. I did notice that Bitmex is not able to onboard Hong Kong investors. Right, um, I think I have so, seen that before as well. Yeah, so I so so it's, there's definitely some gray area here. Um, but yeah, I mean, we always but but there's there's a few exchanges that are trying to get regulated and stuff here, and and there's 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 managers trying to get regulated. But if you if it if it's done privately, like if you set up a private fund and it's just a group of friends then that's not that's not regulated activity 
anyway, right? right? And so if like, or if, if you, you and I want to, you know, if I want to pay you for something and we're both in Hong Kong and I, and I want to pay you with Bitcoin, then, you know, that's fine, right? Again, it's not reg. It doesn't fall under the remit of the regulator. Yeah. So taking a step uh, back from regulation, um, you guys announced the launch of two funds in April amidst, uh, you know, the coronavirus pandemic with the goal of raising 100 million US dollars by the end of the first year. So were you fundraising prior to that announcement? And have you seen any changes in investor interest since the pandemic hit? Yeah, you know, it was tough to market before we had all of the approvals, to be honest. And even even after we got the approvals, what you find is people want to know, well, when can I invest? And so, yeah, it was it, there wasn't really any ability to, for us to market the funds before that. You know, so the goal was we got the approval uh, at the very, yeah at the beginning of April, and then you know we announced that we had got those approvals in April. And then, yeah, we, we went into the sort of launch mode and the setup mode for those funds. Uh, finally launched the Bitcoin fund in June. And uh, yeah, it's been going well. You know, we, 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 we started small with just under 10 million US dollars now. But I think that, you know, it's only been, uh, yeah, we've only been uh, live for seven weeks. So it's been quite, quite a good start. And I think what you mentioned about the, the coronavirus pandemic it's played into cryptocurrencies in terms of the attractiveness because, you know, we, uh, before coronavirus pandemic, and this is this is a point of contention. I think there's a lot of economists who are arguing the economy was on the way down anyway, first quarter of this year. But certainly, what's happened with the coronavirus, and, and obviously that's led to an economic downturn, uh, which has put pressure on rates, downward pressure on rates. There's been a lot of money create if you look at like m2 in the us brought the definition of broad money we've seen like a four trillion increase in the money supply that money's got to go somewhere you know a lot of it's gone into in into money market funds um but you know those money market funds are paying like a next to zero yield and there's more money creation that's going to come down the road and we know that people look at bitcoin as a store of value we know that people compare it to gold you can see what's happened to gold and silver prices. So these, you know, crypto is an asset class. Digital assets as an asset class has definitely come in into people's focus. I think that's been a, a positive thing from the conversations that we're having, that's for sure. And so what are the types of investors that you've been seeing express interest? Are most of them also, uh, you know, Southeast Asia based are you seeing interest from, you know, more family offices or are there any pensions that are exp expressing interest, you know, high net worth individuals, you know, you know, what is kind of the landscape of, you know, the investors that that seem to be interested in crypto now, you know, via regulated, you know, vehicle. Uh, and also has that changed since you entered the space and you're at Kinetic and obviously you couldn't fundraise them, but I'm sure you, you may have seen some inbound. Yeah, so we're seeing, we're seeing good interest. The, ultimately, the funds that we're designing here are like institutional grade. They're designed for institutional investors. And that would ultimately mean like banks and hedge funds. And so because they're designed to have the liquidity for um, large scale, and obviously they have the regulatory requirements that uh, meet the demands of those institutional investors. But the reality is, is a lot of the institutions, they're very interested 
but they're not doing anything yet. And so, and then if you want to get on wealth platforms and things like that, it takes a few years. So we've had good conversations with those guys, but really the, the, the investor base where we see solid interest, like at least like uh, actionable interest is more from the high net worth and family offices. And, and, and yeah, those, I think those types of investors are looking to diversify out of cash, are looking to diversify out of financial assets into, into hard assets. Yeah. And I think, I think it's also just a matter of, you know, there's a lot less compliance for a family office or a high net worth individual to allocate, right. Versus, you know, you know, it seems like me that a lot of traditional institutions are, you know, starting to dip their toes, but there's a, you know, there's a process, right. And it's going to take time, but it's definitely interesting to see this, you know, increase in interest more recently. Exactly. And, and like, I do talk with the banks, um, in, in Hong Kong, the, the, the investment banks, and there is interest and there's more, I would say there's more happening than people realize. They're working on this, but it takes, their processes take a, a lot longer than, you know, they're, they're just less nimble than a family office or high net worth. Yeah. I mean, I was talking to one of the largest uh, brokerage firms in the world and they've been working on on spinning up a you know a hedge fund vehicle for the last two and a half years that can allocate a small percentage to crypto, but it's taken them two and a half years to get internal compliance approval and they're still going. So it's 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 certainly a process and you know, an arduous process at that, I think, internally from some of these entities. Yeah, absolutely. But they're they're getting there. I think you'd be you'd be yeah, there's a lot happening, you know. I think even to the extent where these, the banks that you wouldn't expect, like the, the household name type investment banks, uh, are looking at like digital security offerings and things like that. It's, you know. Yeah, no, for sure. And so when you guys launched, the first fund that you announced was exclusively focused on providing professional investors with exposure to Bitcoin. Uh, why did you decide to launch with a Bitcoin only fund? Yeah, so I just think that's where, that's where the demand is. You know, Bitcoin in terms of the market value of the whole digital asset space is huge, in terms of the trade volume is huge. People are familiar with Bitcoin. I, I think it's it's definitely in topic at the moment as an alternative to gold. I think most asset allocators, most investors realize that some part of their portfolio should have an investment in gold. And then also they're adding to that, well, shouldn't I own a little bit of Bitcoin as well? And so I think like to that extent, like a where to the extent where a 1% allocation to Bitcoin makes sense, then clearly that's, that's a very, that's a very good marketing angle. Yeah, no, certainly. And I, 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 I agree with that. You know, I think as you mentioned earlier, you know, it always kind of starts with Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is, is, you know, how people get their foot in the door. And I think, you know, when, when, you know, creating a portfolio allocation, right. Uh, I think people understand the idea of putting one or two percent of your portfolio in a digi- in, in, into a digital gold, right? And I think that's sitting very well, and I think will play will play out very well for Bitcoin over the you know the next few years, especially as you know the market cap of Bitcoin is what five percent of gold, uh, so it still has has quite some way to go. But you Absolutely. you guys also no please yeah, and I was just, I, I was going to say I think just starting with a fund like that that has quite a simple construction is good in terms of building our brand reputation, building our, our um, brand and, and, and perception with the market as, you know, very reputable digital asset manager. 
Yeah, and and certainly we've seen that you know other companies have been able to 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 do that as well, right? You know whether it be Grayscale with their Bitcoin fund, right? And now they've expanded and are starting to do other you know funds. Obviously, those are an active management, but they're direct exposure, and we're seeing that with XBT provider, um, you know, which is part of CoinShares, which is now at a billion in AUM. So certainly get that, and you know, Bitwise as well. But you guys also. Uh, announced that you had approval to launch an actively managed fund later this year. Um, so what is kind of the strategy of that active fund and you know what is your thesis there? Yeah, so with the like one of the one of the drawbacks for investors, we saw this in the Fidelity digital asset study. Like investors always say, number one drawback for digital assets is the volatility. And so investors hate volatility. Even like with long short equity investing, the, one of the one of the benefits that you have from that is you have low vol. And so um, we want to have a low vol alpha generating product um, with the active fund. That's, that's the end game. So how do we, how do we, how do we approach that? Um, we, we, we're market neutral effectively. So that would be like long, short. So we'll find ways to hedge out the market risk um, so we can isolate the, the alpha from the individual investment strategies and we have a we have a, a quantitative based approach, so that is looking at off chain data, which is like the tie is producing a lot of really fantastic um, off chain data. That would be you know Twitter feeds and news feeds. We can utilize that, uh, and we can back test those types of strategies that that utilize that data. And then we're also using on chain data, so we will look at like the on-chain activity, we'll look at the GitHub activity. Um, we will look at like wallet address movements. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of data that's available. And so again, that backtest that type, that, those, type, those strategies that utilize that data. Um, and then we, then we have really what is effectively like an event-driven strategy. And purely systematic, or is there some discretion that's being used there at times as well? Yeah, so it's like a hybrid. So um, I would I would say we have a quantitative um, analysis a, a method of analysis, and we have a, a quantitative process uh, that we follow. But ultimately, the the investment decisions are discretionary because I want to keep that human element to it. I think it's it's difficult to just let the algos run the show and 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 build everything with you know machine learning and everything. Yeah, and I certainly think that there's there's benefits to that, you know, more, you know, human hitting the trigger approach. I, I think we have we've had so many black swan events that have occurred in crypto yeah. um, that have just decimated, you know, some funds. Right. And I think that it's important to kind of have your figure, finger on the trigger and to, and to be monitoring, you know, news and events for for things that potentially, you know, present a tremendous amount of risk. You know, you could, you know, what if BitMEX gets hacked? Right. You know what happens then to crypto, right? What if, um, you know, a token that's in your portfolio gets fifty-one percent attacked? You know, and and you need to get out of that right away. So I think there's certainly, you know, some benefits to just to you know having a human that's physically the one hitting the trigger. Yeah, I completely agree with that, and I th- and I think there's two different things that I would add, which is, you know, there is a place for the human intuition, like doing this for twenty years and looking at stocks and markets for twenty years. You you develop a bit of a feel for what's happening and why it might be happening. And so, you know, I wouldn't want to remove that completely from from the picture. And then the second thing is like the risk management itself is, you know, often the way that I think about risk management is your portfolio is a little bit like a patient. Sometimes it's healthy, sometimes it's ill, and, and sometimes it's bleeding. 
Now, you can you can think about that like a portfolio that's bleeding. The first thing you got to do is stop the bleeding. That decision has got to be made. You know that you can you can leave that to the you can leave you know the decision on when you do that when you start to cut risk. You can do that like by stop losses and, and, and things like that. But I think it's better to have that as a as a human decision almost. You have more context. Yeah, no, and I think I think that that totally that totally makes sense, right? And I think there are just patterns that you you see by eye in this crypto market as well, like you know, and just things that I feel like I'm constantly seeing, right? You know, we go through these waves, for example, where when we're in a bull market, certain events just have a much bigger impact than they would have in a bear market, right? And and we just you know we just see that, right? You know, like a partnership announcement can have this just obscene or like for example omisco it was announced that or, or i guess it's called omis oh, omg network now right it was announced that a, that um that usdt would move to omg network and and the price moved by you know of omg network by 230 percent over the last seven days right and that's not necessarily something that you could have built into a, a quantitative model but i think you know having seen similar types of events in the past or at least patterns would you know inform you that hey that's something that I should potentially action on exactly and so what we'll do what we do is we have the quantitative models produced buy and sell signals but then we'll look at those buy and sell signals in in a real life context so we want to back test it and qualify it quantify it uh, but then yeah ultimately we've got the finger on the trigger and so you know when trading you know what 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 are the typical you know, holding periods uh, for these assets, or I, you know, I'm I'm not sure if you guys have been, you know, trading, getting ready for the fund to launch, so that maybe it's that you're you're actively doing that now. But you know, what is what is the holding period? Right? Does it depend on the event? Does it depend on the asset? Are you ever just going long a particular asset? Yeah. So we we are, we are trading. We have like a, just just a model portfolio um, where we're testing out these strategies, and so the average holding period I would say is about months. We you know it's it's Really, we want to be fundamental agnostic because there isn't really like a concept of fundamentals in the way that you have equity fundamentals. And so we're trying to identify events. Uh, we're trying to um, really contextualize those events uh, as a buy or sell signal. And then, yeah, that should really materialize. That should crystallize within a time frame of like a month to six weeks normally. And so how are you identifying um, which assets are tradable, uh, right? Because, you know, I, I mean, we, you know, you talked about, you mentioned earlier that Bitcoin certainly has a lot of liquidity, but lots of smaller coins don't have liquidity. So how do you think of, you know, the strategies that you're employing in terms of, you know, how many assets you can actually trade this information on and, and, and how, you know, the, 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 the amount of capital you can deploy changes depending on the individual asset? We, you know, we had this conversation the other day because it's a, it's a moving target. When you're in a, a lively market like now, I, I don't want to say bull market yet, but when you're, you're in a market that has, you know, quite a bit of upside activity, then the, the, the spectrum of coins that we can invest in suddenly goes up because the liquidity profile goes up. But I, I would say in general, it's like the top 50. Like I don't I really believe in liquid market funds. The Bitcoin fund that we're doing is, is like, uh, like I mentioned, you know, daily liquidity. And, you know, for our, the, the times I got in trouble investing uh, and the things that I had noticed 
when I was when I was working at Oxif in the hedge fund world was really like situations where liquidity was was drying up. And you know, even in even in the the, the crypto downturn of twenty eighteen, again it was really like a liquidity game. Like you got to my my view is like the liquidity risk is something that people don't really appreciate. I think there's there's more weighting going into other things. Uh, you know, I would. I, I think liquidity is a really key thing for us. So we want to be in liquid positions that we can um, that we can exit when we want it, when we need to. And then that, that really is dictated by like the top 50. Yeah, and I, I totally agree with you, right? I mean, we see these events that, you know, from our data, we know are super tradable, but we don't know at what scale they're tradable, right? You know, yeah. you could have a, a smaller coin get listed on Binance and that coin could pump 100, 200% but it may pump 200% on a million dollars in total trading volume, right? Yeah. And then can you actually get out at that price? Uh, probably not. Um, so, so certainly a consideration. So you mentioned earlier that you know, you're looking at both on-chain and off-chain data. I'm wondering, are, are there particular patterns or interesting things that you've found on-chain or that you're interested in exploring and any interesting combinations uh, you know, of, of on-chain and off-chain data that you think look promising? Yeah, so we... we... Like ultimately, you want to be able to put the whole thing together, right? Like, uh, let's say uh, a crypto project is undergoing a big upgrade um, to the network. Uh, you want to really be able to compare that to like the network activity. Has the network activity been picking up? Has the GitHub activity been picking up? You know, can we actually see something's happening here? Like, what's happening with the the, the token supply? It, you know, are people uh, are people posting more or less tokens onto exchanges, things like that. So we try and put it all together and put that into like a model and then try and qualify like whether it's meaningful or not. And so, you know, you mentioned supply in terms of, you know, movement on exchange and off exchange. Um, but but do you guys ever consider, you know, the the actual circulating supply of an asset versus its total final supply? Because we've seen in the past, you know, many of these assets will have, you know, in some cases, only five or ten or fifteen or twenty percent of their total supply issued. Is that something that you guys are considering when making, you know, an investment decision that that lasts a month, or do you think that's more relevant for longer term investment versus trades? Yeah, I think it's more relevant for the longer term investments. It's cer- certainly something I consider, but in more of a, like a longer term context. I think when you're, I think in the short term, the, the, there's not like a great deal of market depth in in, in, in these the way that these tokens trade and so that in in the short term you can definitely get a big skew between buyers and sellers and it moves the price a lot right that makes sense and so you know we you know you kind of hit on this earlier right you know your your job as an an equity analyst you know earlier at goldman and, and uvs and oxif and so you know how did how do those experiences and i think you touched on it a bit but how do those experiences prepare you for the digital asset market and you know, what strategies were you able to, you know, bring over or learnings were you able to bring over from your, you know, experiences in equities? Um, and what did you have to learn that was new for crypto? Yeah, so there's a, there's definitely like the feel for the market. You know, the market, it's a little bit like crypto markets like traditional market on steroids a little bit. Um, so everything seems to be amplified. Well, you definitely get a feel for that market. And, and you know, when I was analyzing companies, I would always think 50% of the trade here is the fundamentals. So like where, where are we going to be in 18 months with a company? Where are the earnings going to be? Um, how's the company going to look in 18 months? But the other half is going to be 
driven by the liquidity environment. Like, is there going to be net inflows into the market? What's the central bank doing? It's like, what's the investor positioning? So I really did think it was a 50-50. Now, the fundamentals on crypto, there is a certain network effect that you can argue. You know, clearly Bitcoin is a, a network that has a tremendous amount of um, daily activity in transactions and users. And, 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 you know, that's represented by the network value. So I think you can, you can, ha- you can draw some parallels there. Like if, if, if Ethereum really kicks off um, as, as the de facto smart contract um, platform, then, you know, clearly that network should be more valuable than, than some of the other smart contract platforms. Um, but, but also by the same token, you know, you've got to understand the liquidity environment. That's where I got caught up so many times at, at Oxif, whereby you have like a great company um, and they're doing good things, uh, but the liquidity environment is getting tighter for whatever macro reason. People are not allocating capital to that particular country. And it can have an, and, and that now has a huge impact on the valuation of, of the security. So, uh, you know, and, and, that, and I think like the, the points today are encouraging for crypto just because the world is awash with liquidity. Yeah, no, I think I think that certainly makes sense. And I think, you know, you mentioned countries, you know, and in, in, in equities, but I think in crypto it's kind of like sectors, right? Yeah. Where we're seeing this rush of liquidity to DeFi um and not necessarily to some of these other protocols. Um, you know, when we saw that with, you know, you mentioned earlier Yam Finance, which had seven hundred and fifty million dollars in total value locked in the first day. Yeah. And, you know, it seems like, you know, investors are willing to, you know, bring liquidity to any of these DeFi protocols. But, you know, is that going to be the same for other other protocols? And is that going to be at the same a month from now that it is today? Yeah. And the, and the whole thing can resemble a little bit like a little bit of a beauty pageant, you know, that and they, they I think that's actually a term in in equity markets, right? Like beauty contest investing, right? It's like, um, what what is the flavor of the month? Yeah, and we've seen exactly. it with, we've seen it with DeFi. You know, I can see it's interesting. I can see some early signs in the security token market where things are just starting to happen now, and and that's been a slow burn because the regulatory hurdles there have been immense. Well, especially because of you know, I think that the the fact that retail investors can't access those markets just like they can with with crypto markets, right? I think one of the reasons crypto has been able to succeed so fast is is because you know the retail presence, right, and all the liquidity uh, and interest that retail is driving. But with security tokens, it's kind of started as something that like you know, like a Nasdaq second market that's that to this point is only available to institutions, and so you don't really have that rush to liquidity that you you had. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um... And yeah, and I think, you know, there needs to be, that, that's a market, the security token market is really depending on the institutionalization of the, of the space, right? So the regulatory framework has to be there before that can, that can kick off, that can really start. And, and that's just about coming together now, I, I think. And so you kind of hit on this, um, you know, a bit, but, you know, the fact that crypto really doesn't have any quote unquote fundamentals, like, you know, the, the auto industry does, right? You know, there's, you're not looking at, you know, cyclical car sales and you're not looking at earnings and you're not looking at revenue and you're not looking at dividends. So, you know, with that in mind, um, you know, how do you define fundamentals for crypto? And I, I know you, I think you kind of hit on it with, you know, looking at things like, you know, GitHub activity and on-chain metrics and, and some different things, but, um, you know, what other data points are you looking at and, and do fundamentals 
differ by coin. Like are Bitcoin's fundamentals different than Ethereum's, different than, let's say, an application that's built on Ethereum? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the value is more subjective because you're relying on network effects and network value and valuing network is is impossible. Like if, if Facebook had no advertising revenues, let's say the government banned advertising on Facebook, what would that network be worth? There's like billions of people who use it. It would have a value. Um, maybe some people would argue that it would have no value, but ultimately, you know, but it's incredibly subjective. And so it is, it is, it is difficult, but I, I think this is something that is not just unique to crypto. Like I was looking today, Tesla's the 10th biggest company in the US now. It's bigger than Walmart. And they just turned a profit. Whereas Walmart's got like 18 billion in profit. So, you know, that that's an incredibly, I, I, I'm not sure I agree with that valuation. You know, I think that's crazy. Well, yeah, I mean, it seems like in the stock market, fundamentals don't matter anymore. I feel like we've just thrown that out the window. So why should it matter in crypto? Yeah, well, I'm, you know, it's it's maybe may, maybe the market's been smart there and saying, well, Tesla has this. Everyone in the world knows what Tesla is, and so maybe it should be worth something. You know, without a profit, like that's that that's almost like playing into the the, the network effect as well. Yeah, it's 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 it, you know, it becomes incredibly subjective, and I think like and I think that's, but then you know, equities are equally subjective at times. So that, that would be my point there, which is, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's not, it's never going to be a science, not for, not for, not for crypto and, and not even for, for equity. There's always going to be stuff that makes you think that doesn't make sense. And so I wonder, and I mean, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I mean, look, it's, it's, I agree, it's never going to be a science, but I think we're still at the point where we really don't have any even semi-universally accepted metrics to value a crypto network, right? We obviously have, you know, the NVT ratio, uh, which was created a few years ago, but that's really not been widely adopted, right? And, um, you know, we've had, you know, some attempts at, at, at valuing digital assets. I mean, what, I mean, do you think there's some sort of data or information that's missing in this space? Or, or do you think that there's, you know, data that will start to become more universally accepted as, as ways to value these networks? Yeah, so we we actually did we had a we had a crack at this when I was at Kinetic and um, we used uh, as we, we started with the basis of the MV equals PQ equation, right? Which is uh, equation of exchange, quantity theory of money, and um, basically says like the, the you know the, the the amount of money in supply times by the velocity is equal to the price times the quantity, right? It's like the standard equation that you use in a, in an in an economy. And, you know, I think we did like, we ran a model on Ethereum and we, we, we came to like a thousand dollar valuation on, on Ethereum, which was based on um, 30% like adoption. We looked at the addressable market and we said like, well, what if 30% of the total payments and, you know, e-commerce is done using crypto and like as a protocol, Ethereum has like 30% of that. And, and, and we did, and we discounted it back. But yeah, I mean, like the, the premise behind that is yeah it's still subjective right you can do it i mean we, when we did that exercise we got to like a thousand price target on, on on ethereum um but that's that's the only thing that i've seen that's the only way i've seen of 
being able to try and it's, do it. It's funny. It's funny you mentioned that because we actually had Yoni Asia, who's the CEO of eToro, on, and uh, he brought up the exact same thing. You know, MV equals PQ for uh, for Ethereum as well, right. um, as the, kind of the only way that he's thought about. Uh, you know, you know, um, of valuing these networks. But the thing, you know, that's just so difficult is like what happens to gas fees, right? You know, we're seeing that now with, you know, um, with DeFi, right, where it's costing 20 or $30 to transact on top of the Ethereum network, right? So what impact does that have, right? And I think um, there's just so many forces at play here that it that it's really hard to find fundamental ways to, to assess value. And I think, you know, to what you guys are doing, I think what you guys are doing is smart, right, is is taking advantage of these, you know, event driven moves that these coins seen, because I mean, there are clearly patterns that are that are becoming evident, right? And then that, that I think you'll be even able to find even more once you start to dive into, you know, data both on and off chain and, and start to combine some of that. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's because, like, I'm interested in the intellectual debate on how to value, value this stuff. But it, it's, it's like, is that can you put that into an investment strategy? That's a difficult thing for me. I mean, if you think about it, like conceptually, should the Ethereum network be more successful? That increases the velocity of the token. Like a higher velocity, all things being equal, is a lower valuation. So, yeah, there are there are some problems. But I think you know, I would encourage everyone to think about these things logically. Um, that there's you know, like the supply increase of Ethereum when when when, it, when the project moves to proof of stake. You know, obviously people should be thinking about these types of things right yeah and i think something that we we also haven't figured out yet is should the protocol layer or the application layer accrue more value right should your chain links built on top of ethereum and your uniswaps and all those different applications accrue more value or should the success of those applications accrue you know value to ethereum because the the answer a few years ago was that the protocols are the ones that that should win right and we had seen that but now it seems like there's a bit of a change that here, right? Where, you know, all of a sudden Chainlink is a top 10 or top five asset by market cap. And that's an, just an application that's built on top of Ethereum. So also something, you know, and I'd, I'd be eager to hear your thoughts on, on that or whether you think that's, you know, we still have to wait to see that play out. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I remember the the conversation, like the, uh, the, 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 the fat, fat protocol the thesis. Fat protocol yeah. thesis, yeah, yeah. And, and it is an interesting one, like where does the value really reside it, it 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 really depends on how the how the dApps evolve like we haven't really seen a really promising dap yet that 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 that, that i'm aware of in terms of like you know i'm thinking of you know like a, a gaming yeah i mean i don't think we've seen any that have had real usage other than speculation yet. yeah exactly and so you know if you you know you could create like a um a game let's say like you know, a game like Fortnite was was a, was a was a, a DAP with its own token. You know that that could be interesting, right? I mean, you're getting yeah, you're getting, no, getting I think into, it totally makes sense. Yeah, you're getting into the realm of Ready Player One. I don't know if you've seen that movie. I, I have not. I haven't seen it yet. So this is like a Spielberg movie, and um, you should watch it. It's, it's a Spielberg movie, and and uh, they have a virtual reality world and the real world and the currency and the in the virtual reality world, which is in a game effectively, is worth more than the real world currency. No, that's that's interesting. And I, I I really agree with that, you know, thesis. I mean, one of the one of the things for me that just doesn't quite make that much sense is I mean, we saw like something like Chainlink go up to a six billion dollar valuation, right? And you know, shouldn't should a decentralized Oracle be worth six billion dollars? 
Um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer yeah. to that question is. Uh, I mean, that sounds like a lot of money to me. I think in the context of the overall market, you know, you've got limited upside, right? Like just by definition of, of the fact that it's in the top 10 now. Right. Like, does it go to 18 billion? Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for some of these smaller altcoins that are trading at 10 or $15 million that can now move on, you know, can move significantly on a million dollars or $2 million in trading volume versus, you know, Chainlink, Chainlink has now become this massive protocol um, that, that needs significant volume to, to, you know, increase in value. Yeah. And, and like you say, like how much of that is, is speculative, like probably the majority Right. hundred percent. So I'm interested in knowing, um, you know, especially coming from traditional finance into crypto is, you know, as you're applying these systematic strategies, uh, how does the broader macro uh, economic landscape impact how you're, you're allocating to digital assets and, and how you're trading? And, and does it inform your decisions more today than when you first started at Kinetic? I think there's more of a case for digital assets today than when I was at Kinetic. And even though that, you know, not a lot of time has passed since then. Um, just because of the, I mean, in crypto years, it's a lot of time. Yeah, right. But just, <laughs> I mean, just in terms of the monetary environment, you know, I've, I've in our slide deck, um, I have a, I have a slide which shows the money supply. Uh, actually, we show aggregate money supply, so that, so that is across the U.S., Japan, uh, eurozone, and U.K. And um, you know, there's a tremendous increase in, in in broad money at the moment, which is like central bank money creation. And um, that's going hand in hand with with rates being um, incredibly low, and so yeah, there is there is there is a demand for diversification into scarce assets, and I think I think even in terms of like just the financial world as well, there's a lot of interesting work at the moment on on the sixty forty portfolio, so the sixty forty portfolio, which is sixty um, percent equity, forty percent bonds, which is generally returned like a 10% return uh, over the past 30 years or so the outlook for for those for that portfolio is not particularly appealing when you look at the p ratio stocks at the moment you know for tech named like well above 30 times um you look at the you look at the yields on on all bonds corporate bonds government bonds you know it's going to be very hard for pension funds to meet their return targets with with this traditional portfolios. And so I think you're seeing not just crypto, but you're seeing asset allocators move more and more towards alternatives. And, and uh, yeah. Yeah. So are there, are there any, do you think we're at the point yet where macroeconomic news has the ability to have a significant impact on Bitcoin or I guess digital assets more broadly? Like, do you think there's, you know, opportunistic and, you know, opportunities and more systematic strategies to look at things like Federal Reserve announcements and and what central banks are doing and and are, are you seeing any impact of that or, or regulatory policy on, on digital assets? So we're testing that. And yeah, we're still, it's still a bit of a work in progress. So far, there isn't a lot. Like if you look at the correlation of Bitcoin to gold, it, it, it's not correlated. Even though we might intuitively think we see it, see them moving together. They're not actually correlated, and so, but the, but the, but you know, it's it's. I think it, it could reach a point where you know you do get some some uh, mechanism, um, some some feedback mechanism between 
those macro type announcements and, and what's what's happening in the crypto world. Yeah, I, I'm I'm trying to find we we did this report this quarterly report with Etoro every quarter, and we actually pulled numbers on uh, you know the 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 correlation between Bitcoin and gold, but not actually the correlation. Basically, the percentage of days that Bitcoin and gold moved in the same direction. I just got it here. So in April, Bitcoin and gold, you know, the price moved in the same direction fifty six percent of the time. In May, it was sixty percent. In June, it was only fifty percent. Whereas you know, Bitcoin and the S and P actually moved in the same direction sixty two percent of the time. Uh, whereas S&P and gold moved in the same direction 35% of the time. So we're certainly not yet seeing, I think, to your point, that 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 correlation between Bitcoin and gold as much as people you know, want to pretend like it's there. Yeah, and it, it, there, was a, there was a one-off event in March when everything went down, right? So everything became super correlated. The 12th, yeah. Yeah. But, um, I mean, the encouraging thing for me is like the, the volatility of Bitcoin, you know, has generally been below 50 recently. The volatility is actually lower than oil at the moment. Like sustained. That's, that's wild. Yeah. So the like the sustained volatility on Bitcoin is lower than lower than oil, and and so yeah, I think that's a positive sign. If Bitcoin is becoming more stable, uh, you know that definitely that definitely helps it if there's macroeconomic tailwind. And so, what are the biggest challenges uh, associated with being a CIO in the crypto sphere, and and what keeps you up at night as a CIO of a crypto fund? Well, the re- the, the regulatory hurdle was like a tough one. I mean. It took years, and so uh, you know, no doubt that'll be easier for the companies that that follow us in Hong Kong, which I'm sure there will be companies that follow us. Yeah, so the, certainly, certainly that that was that was a bit of a challenge. I, I think the biggest I think the biggest challenge though for CIO in the space is really the AUM environment. Like the whole the whole market's small, right? I mean, we're looking at um, we're looking at the whole digital asset space, which is less less than 20% of Apple's market cap. And so when you're talking about setting up funds, like aside from a grayscale um, and maybe some of the Pantera funds, you know, mo- most funds in this space are, uh, are really small, uh, like less than te- less, certainly less than $100 million. And so, yeah, you need to be, you need to really manage your cost structure. You know, it's not, with, with the lower AUM environment, Hopefully that's going to change one day. But certainly in the early years, as our AOM is small, then we need, we need to manage our cost base. We need to. I need to know that we're going to be. We're still going to be around uh, doing this in five years, if, even if the market sticks around at the current level. Yeah, and I think a lot of those you know funds that you mentioned earlier, or, or, or alluded to at least, um, that have a, a a large amount of AUM are funds that have just been around since 2013, 14, and just were buying Bitcoin at 200 bucks, right? And right. a lot of it is just because they bought Bitcoin at 200 bucks that their you know AUM is now up to in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I mean, and, and that, I think go on. No, I was going to say, I think it's also a lot harder for them to trade than it, than it is for some of these smaller funds, though, as well, and, and to actually allocate their assets. Yeah, exactly. And, and um, you know, I think one of the, some, of, some of the other challenges, like you mentioned, one of the, one of the, what keeps you up at night, one of the challenges, it's, it's, it's the 24-7 can be problematic. It needs to be managed. You need to have a, you need to have a way of dealing with that. I, I think it's okay for us, to be honest. I, I think the only problem is, from a risk standpoint, it's okay. I think the only problem is, are we do we miss opportunities if we're asleep? And so, what worries you most about crypto, and then what has you most excited about the space? The thing that the thing that worries me is is the network vulnerability side. 
like how robust are the networks? Um, not just to 51% attack, but to bugs and things like that. And I think that worries me because, you know, I'm not a computer science major. Right. You can't edit, audit the code yourself, right? And so it's, it's kind of a belief in others and what others are saying. It's, it's hard for me to qualify that. Like I, I look at the, the robustness of the Bitcoin network over the past 10 years, and I, and I think that gets, that's what gives me confidence. Uh, you know, I don't have the background to be able to get into the code and say, yeah, this is like super robust. It can't fail. Um, so that, you know, that's certainly what has me, um, that's something that, 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 that definitely worries me. And I think, look, that plays into, that plays in, that plays into the investment advice that I, I, that I give people, which is, I think it makes sense to allocate like one or 2% of your net worth or a portfolio's value into this space. Like I wouldn't be going all in. Um, it's, it's new, right? Um, in terms of like what, what has me excited, it's really like how small we are right now. Like the market's at 370 billion. It's like a drop. It's not even a drop in the bucket. It's like a droplet of mist. And so any meaningful allocation to this space or any meaningful growth in adoption will definitely increase the overall value. And so we can we can discuss about where does that value go? Does it go into alt? Does it go into Bitcoin? Does it go into something we haven't even thought about yet? Um, because you know the number of assets can be increased infinitely. So that that's something that's up for debate. But you know, there's going to be money making opportunities in the space. That's for sure. Yeah, I think the upside is is exponential compared to any other asset class still. And, and, you know, the volatility um, and, and the newness and the event-driven nature of the space because of the lack of fundamentals, I think, makes it incredibly exciting. Uh, and I think it just makes for so many incredible opportunities as a fund manager. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And so I like to end uh, each episode with a, a fun final question. And so you and, you know, you guys are based in, uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, I actually lived in Hong Kong uh, in high school growing up, went to HKS. So, wow. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a, you know, my, uh, my, uh, you know, father was out there for work kind of thing. So I did the whole expat thing, lived in Repulse Bay. Uh, it's a good school. A, it's a good school. And I, yeah. I lived at Hong Kong Park View, which is just awesome. It's, you know, there's hiking everywhere there. You're close to the city. So my question for you is, you know, uh, what's your favorite bar in Long Kwai Fung is the first, the first question. And the, uh, the second is what are your favorite places that you've traveled in Southeast Asia? Yeah, so Lang, I, I, you know, I feel sorry for the the owners and all of the people who work in F and B and Lang Kwai Fong. You know, we have these restrictions at the moment, which is really, really tough on them. They have to close at six p.m. Um, so yeah, I really, I hope that that can change soon. What's my favorite bar? I, I, I would say my favorite bar is Salon Ten. I don't know if you have, if you, if you haven't been to Hong Kong recently, you definitely wouldn't know it. And I might be cheating a bit because technically it is a couple of minutes walk from Lang Kwai Fong. But that's like... If anyone that counts. What counts? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyone's coming to Hong Kong, they should check out Salon 10. And um, where do I like in Southeast Asia? I think Bali's got to be the, got to be the favorite. Love going to Bali. I, 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 we haven't been able to travel like a lot of people for... Um, I mean, Hong Kong's quite... Yeah, Hong, Kong, Hong Kong's got quite intense um, border 
restrictions. So yeah, there hasn't been any travel. I've been enjoying my first trip to Bali whenever the borders open. Yeah, I think I think Hong Kong has has you know really taken it seriously. You know, I was talking to uh, you know one of my good friends. He he came back and he told me you know one you get you know you have to go um, to uh, Asia World Expo and sit there for twelve hours and get tested, and then you have to go quarantine for two weeks. So it it, it doesn't seem like they're in any rush to uh, let people enter out of the country. But I, they've done an incredible job at at managing the the uh, you know COVID, especially compared to the uh, the unbelievably awful job that we've done in the United States. Yeah, I mean, the, the the number of cases at least have been very low. So they definitely achieved that, yeah. This was awesome. Um, you know, so many great, uh, you know, sound bites and um, a lot of great insight from you as well. So, you know, how can the people listening, uh, you know, find out to you, uh, you know, reach out to you or, you know, if they're interested in learning more about Arano or where can they follow you guys online? Yeah, so we have uh, we have a website www.aranocapital.com. Um, Venture Smart also has a website www.bsfg.com. So um, you can uh, you know there's definitely a way to, to get in touch with us uh, via those websites. Uh, we can, you can send us a message via the Arano website, um, and we'll we'll someone in the team will pick that up. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much for uh, for joining us and hope to have you on again soon. Thanks a lot, Joshua. It was a pleasure.